Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, and today I have a special treat in store for you. I'm going to share today a special episode of Nutrition Without Compromise, another show that I host. And this is an interview with Dr. William Muma. He happens to be the person who created the term, who coined the term proforestation. And you've heard me talk about that term a bit during this show, in particular when I covered Paul Hawkins' regeneration. I invite you to go back to that earlier series and listen if you haven't. As you listen to today's episode, I want for you to think about questions that you have for him, because you'll have the opportunity to ask them. All I ask that you do as you listen is make note of the questions that you have and go ahead and send me an email note to hello at caremorebebetter.com. I will actually be interviewing him on this show in coming months. I believe that this new show I'm hosting will be appealing to many of my listeners for Care More Be Better. So if you haven't checked it out already, I encourage you to go to Nutrition Without Compromise on your favorite podcasting platform and subscribe. All right, that's it. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet. Thanks for joining me today for another great discussion around nutrition and health without compromise. Today, we're going to talk about the intersection of environmental concerns and your health and nutrition as we get to know William Muma. Dr. Muma is Emeritus Professor of International Environmental Policy and Founding Director of the Center for International Environment and Resource Policy at the Fletcher School of Tufts University. An MIT-schooled PhD in physical chemistry, he has been instrumental in pushing for positive change through his work as a science fellow in the U.S. Senate, where he worked on legislation that successfully addressed ozone depletion. He began working on climate change in 1988 as the first director of the climate program at World Resources Institute in Washington. He has been the lead author of five intergovernmental panel on climate change reports, the IPCC. Now, that was the one that shared the Nobel Peace Prize for its climate work in 2007. He is currently working on natural solutions to climate change with a focus on increasing carbon dioxide removal and sequestration by forests, wetlands, and soils to complement emission reductions from land use changes and replacing fossil fuels with zero carbon renewable energy. He even coined the term proforestation, which we'll get to talk about today. Dr. Muma, welcome to the show. Thank you, Corina. That was quite an introduction. Thank you very much. Well, I'm just so thrilled to have the opportunity to meet you now. As it stands, the work that you've done specifically with the IPCC to put forward international change is really incredible. I imagine that you got a chance to know also Al Gore, (laughs) who produced An Inconvenient Truth and and kind of shocked much of America into thinking differently about climate change. I did. I actually met him when he was a senator before he was vice president. And uh, 1988 in Washington, he invited a group of climate scientists, and I as the new director of the World Resources Institute program, 
to meet with him for, uh, quite for these intense meetings that went on for hours in an unheated Senate office building. <laughs> it was during the people were still worried about energy crisis and all that sort of thing. So when Senate wasn't in session, they didn't turn the heat on. And so the global warming was all outside, but it wasn't in that building, I can tell you. But he was a great student. He listened carefully and wrote a pretty accurate book. Well, and even had to produce it as a movie so we could capture the imaginations of people to really help them understand what was happening, right? Now, in an article that you co-authored, Catalyzing Innovation, Cutting Out the Middle Fish, Marine Microalgae as the Next Sustainable Omega-3 Fatty Acids and Protein Source, you spell out how looking to algae as a novel nutrition source could actually create more oxygen and sequester carbon while ensuring our marine ecosystems rebound, all while feeding humans and animals. Now, that article was published back in October 2017, and by my estimation, things have only gotten worse as far as the environment is concerned. And we've also seen quite a bit of progress in the world of nutrition as it relates to science and research of what we can do with algae. So I wondered if you could briefly summarize for our audience how algae is capable of doing all of these things. All plants have this miraculous capacity to use water and carbon dioxide from the air and a few nutrients from either if they're water plants, water, or soil plants, the soils, in the presence of sunshine to make first sugars and then starches. And then in the case of woody plants, it's cellulose. One of the amazing things about algae is they don't need that last step. They never have to make wood. They just have to make the cellular material that keeps them going. And characteristic of life is that it keeps on living. The individuals may disappear, but the species does not. And algae has an amazing capacity to double its weight in a matter of days, which is faster than any other plants on the planet. And they're green. That means they have chlorophyll. They can do this magic. I don't, it takes chlorophyll to do it. When I first met Isaac Burson, he had done some research. He was looking at it as, well, could we use this as a fuel, a renewable fuel, diesel fuel or something? With all due respects to Isaac, who's a very bright guy, it turns out it's a bit of a bad idea because it turns out the oils in these materials are uh, very rich omega-3 fatty acids. And so that would have been a really foolish thing to be burning. He had backed out of that long ago when he came up with this idea, could we use these for food and for feed, to feed a fish and livestock, maybe. And they also make a certain amount of carbohydrates, which animals and we need for our energy system. And one day I just asked him, I said, what do you know about the proteins in these algae? What is known about that? And he says, well, not much. And I said, well, you know, it seemed to be interesting to know how many of the essential amino acids, human beings need about 20 essential amino acids that we can't make ourselves. It turns out when it was tested that the best food we have that has the balance for us is eggs, chicken eggs. This was comparable, essential amino acids. It was just a miraculous discovery. So suddenly you had not just a curiosity, the title of our paper, Cutting Out the Middle Fish, was reference to the fact that when you farm fish, you go out in the ocean and you drag all the small fish out the bottom of the food chain out and feed it to the fish that are on the farm. Well, then that just depletes the whole ecological functioning of the ocean. And so when Isaac called me once, he said, where do you get your omega-3s? And I said, from fish, like everybody else. He said, where do the fish get it from? They get it from algae. He said. So that's what got us started on this whole thing. 
And so as you follow that trend, you begin to see all kinds of possibilities for different species of algae having different mixes of nutrients that would be very suitable for different diets of us and for some of our animals. Yeah, well, I have to say, somebody who has worked in this natural products industry for the last 20 plus years, I mean, I worked to build omega-3 companies, the namesake of Nordic Naturals, for nine years. And in that entire time, we never talked about where the fish got their omega-3s. We did talk about simple things like what we were seeing was that they were actually seeing a shift in the percentages of DHA and EPA present in the bodies of the fish. And what it would turn out to be the result of was simply that there are different species of algae that are flourishing in our oceans now than there were prior. And they have different levels of EPA and DHA in them. And so, of course, it's going to affect and change the world of fish oil and just fish value, like what is nutrient-wise within them over the course of many years. And so with increasing temperatures to our oceans, different species of algae are flourishing in the ocean. And also that's creating some more challenges for the fish because they tend to flourish in cooler waters where they're more nutrient dense. And so suddenly we're in this cyclic collapse, this system that's not sustainable that we can sit here and say, oh, well, we only use sustainably sourced fish to make our fish oil products or fish meal products to feed our animals as we're growing food for human nutrition. But the reality is it's just not proving to be really the case, right? Because the oceans continue to warm little bit by little bit. Species that can flourish, therefore, are changing. And we have an ecosystem where the integrity of it is ultimately in collapse. So finding these new novel ways to both address human nutrition, reduce our impact on vital ecosystems, and ensure that we're able to sequester more carbon is all going to be helpful, right? Because what is it? We want to have less than a two degree increase over the course of the next several years, but it's not looking good. And so I would love for you to offer your perspective specifically on the latest IPCC report. Where's the silver lining too? Like how can we find optimism in this so that we can take power into our hands to create positive change for our climate and for our health? That's a very challenging question, but it's a very important one. As you said, the oceans are warming, and that means we're eliminating some of these algae, just as we're eliminating coral reefs, which means we're eliminating the most biodiverse, rich parts of the ocean. And also, there are some species that have little shells where the ocean has become so acidic from the absorption of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that they can't build full shells, and therefore their reproductive capacity is becoming more and more limited. So we can see a direct link between exactly what we're emitting. We don't have to worry about even the warming part. It's just the direct link from what we emit, what goes in the ocean, makes it more acidic. And then many species, in fact, some cultured mussels or clams or something, they found they were not reproducing very well. There was no viability. And so they took the seawater and, neutral, and did it in, in controlled conditions and neutralized it chemically so it wasn't so acidic. And lo and behold, those same shellfish were able to reproduce just fine. So it was a very clear demonstration of what the problem was. It, we eat, on the whole, very high on the food chain, meaning that we eat, uh, particularly when we're eating, eating meat products, 
Unfortunately, we don't eat a lot of carnivores. We do eat salmon and some fish that are carnivores. At least we in the West do not eat uh, tiger meat or something like that, the carnivores. But we do eat pork, lamb, and other grazing animals. It's a fairly inefficient process from growing grass, the energy that comes from the sun to grow grass, to the amount of energy content of the meat that we eat. And it takes a lot of water, it takes a lot of land, and it takes a lot of energy inputs to produce a pound of hamburger. And agriculture is behind only industry and transportation and not that far behind in terms of their climate emissions. So we needed to learn to do agriculture differently. The more of the intermediate steps we can cut out, and we have those most intensely in the ocean because there are the phytoplankton, which are the algae and other small plant-like things. Then we have the phytoorganisms that eat that, and we have the little fish that eat that and eat the microorganisms. And then those get eaten by bigger fish and bigger fish and so forth. And the losses every time in terms of food value is about 90%. We lose roughly 90%. That's, that's a, it could be 95, it could be 85, but 90% is a good sort of that's where it is. That's the energy content that's lost, and it's the protein content that's lost every step of the way. That's just not very efficient. And we're somewhat reluctant to eat further down on the food chain of fish that are vegetarians, let's say, as opposed to fish that eat fish that eat fish. So we need to rethink that. And we also need to have foods that are nutritious and which people like. And because of our history of eating what we eat, it better be similar to what tastes similar to what we eat. And it should feel on our tongue that similar to the way of things that we're used to eating. That's a tall order to get all that to work. And as you know, there are a number of non-meat meats out there. Tofus and tempehs, most of them are soy-based, but some are coming from other things now too. Right. And soy uses vastly much more land and water than does algae for the same food value content. Like it's back to that exponential growth pattern, right? So in a matter of days, you have double the amount of algae you started with. You can recycle the same water, use it over and over, depending on how you're growing it. If you're growing it indoors, you could be using renewable energy to create that algae. If you're growing it ponds, you're using the sun and resources, but then you're still subject to seasonality and some other challenges. I mean, there's so many different methods of being able to cultivate algaes. There's some that are even growing using fermentation and feeding sugars. Some of them are more, let's say, energy intensive than others. And ultimately getting to the sweet spot of helping the algae to reach its exponential growth pattern, be able to extract it and be using minimal energy to do so, while also ensuring the carbon you feed it so it can grow isn't just escaping into the atmosphere. I mean, all of these things kind of need to be done. So there's a science behind it, but there's also just the rudimentary reality of how photosynthesis works, right? And so if we can harness the power of algae and get a protein out of it that maybe one day will have the same texture and also the omegas, which we've already become expert at extracting, and other phytonutrients, then we can create something that, yes, is way further down on the food chain, but then also less likely to be full of pollutants, less likely to have issues in growing it. You're not having that 90% loss every time that food becomes food that becomes food that becomes food that we eventually eat, right? You're going to the first plant that ever existed, a microalgae. 
That's right. And so that means it's going to use require the least amount of input energy from whatever sources it takes to grow it and process it and everything else. And it means that it's going to avoid many problems. So like fishing all the little fish out of the ocean to feed fish that are on the farm. So that's being done now, and it's proven quite successful. I mean, imagine that. Now, if we get beyond just the fish liking it and turning it into a product that we would like, I mean, I haven't seen a decent algae burger yet. I don't think anybody's trying to make one, but, but someday, someday, I think there will be an algae burger in the sense that algae will be the protein source and it will come with additional nutrients. And in fact, it probably comes with more omega 3s than we need. And so that could be extracted as a separate product as we are doing today. So you can go pay all that money you pay at the pharmacy to get a little tiny bottle of omega-3 oil. You can see multiple ways in which this is going to work. And algae also have other qualities. We were talking earlier before we came on air about dyes. There are components in algae which have surprising colors to them that you can't see because you see the green of the chlorophyll, but you don't see these other dyes that are hidden there. Or substances in there that could be converted to substances that would be bright dyes or have other important product properties. If people say we struck a gold mine. Hey, in a gold mine, you only get gold. So it sounds like you're a big fan of algae. I mean, I am too. And the more I learn about it, the more deeply entrenched I become and seeing it as a solution plant. And One of the things I found really surprising when I first learned it is that so much of the oil that we're pumping out of the ground was once algae because it was the thing that lived before anything else. And so as it was underground and decomposing, it became oil. So some of what we're pumping out of the ground to burn as fuel is essentially algae. So if the plant that started it all, that started life essentially, can be harnessed to also be part of the solution, it just speaks to the beauty of nature and that we have all the resources we need if we can just learn to be a little bit more meager in how we extract from the environment, because otherwise we will have problems of ecosystem integrity, which we'll see in in my generation for sure, and in my children's too. We always thought of climate change, it was always talked about as a future problem. No, it's a today problem. We've raised the global average temperature by a little over one degree Celsius, or that's 1.8 degrees Fahrenheit. We want to keep it below two. I would like to keep it below one and a half, which is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. But we're already at two degrees Fahrenheit. We're probably not going to meet that. And look at the problems we're having now. When I first got into climate change, the idea was, well, there'd be this gradual warming, and then that means that uh, things will move around and so on. What was totally unanticipated was how very simple, we even knew it at the time, the earth does not warm uniformly. At the time, we knew that the Arctic was warming faster than the rest of the world, now warming three and a half times faster than the average for the world. And so what that has done is it has changed the dynamics of the atmosphere. By that, I mean, we just had this stunning thing a couple of weeks ago where the temperature at the South Pole spiked 70 degrees Fahrenheit hotter than it's ever been. It was either the same week or the next week. The Arctic spiked 50 degrees Fahrenheit warmer than it's ever been. And so what that means is that mass of cold air that used to be stably around the poles is no longer stably there. The winds that kept it in have become weaker. And so that's how you can have this situation. What that means is a lot of that cold air spilled out of the Arctic mass of cold air and warm air rushed in because cold air is denser than warm air. 
So it goes down along the ground and the warm air is up above and it goes in and just you get these stunning changes. Well, and I just see the power of that to fuel some incredible storms, because if you're talking about rapidity of change of temperature like that, you're also talking about the storm of the century type of events. We're having 100-year storms and 100-year precipitation events, rate intensity of rainfall or snow. It's getting more frequent. The 100-year event became the 50-year event. Became the five-year event. We're down in the 20s for sure. And occasionally we have one in a thousand years. I remember back in the 1990s, was the mayor of Newton had just been elected. He was quite big on climate change being a thing. He said, well, we had the flood of the century in 1998. So we thought, well, that won't happen for another 100 years. And then we had another one three years later, flood of the century. But it was a different century by then. So technically still true. I suppose, with a not-so-clever reading of what that means. I mean, you're saying it in a joking way of the absurdity of that kind of thinking. And he said, if it's happening this frequently, we better get working on it. So let's think about solutions. Like, we've talked a bit about algae. We've also talked about the fact that if you're consuming algae instead of, let's say, fish, you're not taking from that ecosystem. You're potentially allowing it to recover a bit. We did some calculations based on Orlo's first line of products, the omega-3 and the prenatal DHA, and found that for the equivalent level of nutrition, of omega nutrition in one of these bottles, it's 110 pelagic fish not taken from the ocean. I mean, that statistic alone is something that I think people can get behind, even if they're not vegetarian or vegan, even if they're a fish oil consumer today. Okay, well, this is a change in a positive direction. And yes, we may not have yet harnessed the full potential of algae for protein, but it's coming. And that's something that I see happening in the next couple of years. We can get to a space where instead of having a soy burger, the impossible burgers of the world, we could have something that's algae-based and that is harnessing that other part of this plant that can grow exponential growth in just a matter of days, that can sequester carbon, and that can actually provide us with oxygen. I mean, I wonder if there are other things on the horizon that also give you hope, whether it be from the proforestation movement or from also the regenerative agriculture that's currently underway, where we're seeing a shift in these more traditional approaches by farmers across America. I spent most of my 20 years on the IPCC working on technological solutions. And towards the end of that time, I began to realize, I knew this from, I don't know, way back when I first learned about climate change, that remarkably enough, the increase every year in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is, we thought it was around half of what we put in. So right now we're putting in, say, roughly 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide, but the increase is only about five. It's actually a little better than that. But where's that going? Well, it's going two places. It's going into the oceans, dissolving in the oceans, making it more acidic. And it's being taken up by growing plants. That is mostly forests. And the rough estimates that the IPCC, they were being more and more refined, the IPCC wrote in their report last year was that they estimate about 25% of the quarter of what we emit is taken up by the oceans. And 31%, or almost a third, is taken up by plants on land. And forests are the largest part of that. Estimates are that's probably about 25% as well. However, we're doing everything we can to degrade the oceans by what we dump into it, the way we treat it. And we are degrading our forests. We're degrading our grasslands. 
and we're degrading our agricultural soils. And so if you plant a crop this year, you cannot grow the same amount of crop next year without adding the lost nutrients. At the same time, we have, have soil that has less carbon content. It holds water less well. We have to add more water. It takes more energy. That energy is provided by fossil fuels. In other words, we're in a vicious cycle of making things worse every year. And it doesn't have to be that way. The same is true with forests. People say, well, our forests are being sustainably managed because we're still in a situation where we're not cutting more than forests are taking out. Well, that's a pretty low bar. And that would be meaning really something quite extraordinary if we were that close. Well, Canada got that, not only that close, they exceeded that bar in 2019, where their managed forest went from removing, I think it was 160 million tons of carbon dioxide a year, to emitting 24 tons of carbon dioxide a year. And it's just rampant cutting. And a lot of it is now, people say they want renewable energy, so we'll burn wood instead of coal. Burning wood emits more carbon dioxide than coal when you get the same amount of energy and even more so when you turn it to electricity because a wood-burning electric power plant is not as efficient as a coal-burning power plant. Well, and we see things like the forest services battling with what the fire services want to do, right? So they say things like, oh, well, we need to thin the forest because right now it's a fire hazard in California or in Oregon or Washington. And when they are using the terminology thinning the forest, it really isn't thinning. It's not like they come in with a helicopter and just take one tree from the center. They're like cutting swaths of land and creating more bare earth. And it takes a long time for the trees to recover from that. It takes a long time for a full-grown forest to recover. When you're in this kind of grassland shrub perspective for a while before you get enough canopy above it to actually do things like create rain because trees create rain. (laughs) So it's such an interesting cyclical problem. We seem to just be making worse, even with the power of intention towards making something better, like trying to reduce the likelihood of a forest fire. Well, in fact, when they do the thinning, they go through and they mostly take out big trees. When I was a Boy Scout, I learned it was really hard to start a fire with a big log and a match. That's certainly true. I could start a big fire with a match and a bunch of little kindling, little twigs, but I couldn't do it with the big trees, with the big wood. And so the younger we keep the forest, the more vulnerable they are to fires. And in the United States, we're in a situation where the Forest Service estimates that there's less than 7% of our forests that are more than 100 years old. Now, these are forests that when we got here were 10,000 years old, and they had accumulated a lot of carbon. There were a lot of big trees. In a study in 2018 that caught my eye by Jim Lutz out at at Utah State University, they studied 48 forests around the world of mature, multi-age forests, and half the carbon was in the largest 1% of big trees, big diameter trees. So big trees, this way. They may be big this way or not, but it's this way that's important because that little shell that's added every year of carbon going around a bigger and bigger and bigger, I'm out of the picture now, a trunk is a lot of carbon. And so we're just immediately losing all that. The biggest source of emissions from forestry is harvesting. It's about 85% of the emissions that occur that counts fires, it counts insects, it counts diseases, it counts wind, it counts everything. We're not letting enough of our forests grow to be older, bigger, 
forests with bigger trees. And so there was a lot of research that was showing this. My contribution was working with an ecologist and another colleague. We realized that we should let more trees grow to be big. This doesn't mean we have to stop cutting all trees down because they're wood products that are valuable and so forth. But we have basically taken the situation that every piece of land that can produce forests for timber should be, should be harvested for timber. Well, that's 70% of the current forest lands in the United States. They're called timber lands by the U.S. Forest Service. And the only reason it's not more than that is because roughly half of the remainder, about 15%, are little scruffy forests that wouldn't be good for anything. And the other half are protected, national parks and places like that. Well, that's pathetic because one of the interesting things that the IPCC statement made in February was that they said that in order to have the resilience and the functionality of forests, what they call ecosystem integrity, they estimate that on a global scale, we must conserve approximately 30 to 50% of Earth's land, freshwater, and ocean areas, including currently near-natural ecosystems. That recommendation with high confidence. That's the first time the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a group of hundreds of scientists reading tens of thousands of research articles, has made a conclusion like that. So we basically set aside 30 to 50 percent of our land. Yeah, but we have to be careful which ones we do, because left to the special interests, it'll be the current wastelands, the tops of mountains that have very little things growing on them, and parts of the ocean where there are not any fish which there are huge swaths of the central oceans, which have very few fish in them. And so this has to be done carefully. It's not just 30 to 50% of anything and everything. It's 30 to 50% that actually amounts to something in terms of ecological function. Yeah, I will tell you, I learned about a new kind of of end-of-life service that I think is really interesting. And that's this company called Better Place Forests. And what they're doing is essentially providing a system where you can choose a forest to dedicate a tree and it's in swaths of land that they're controlling as preserves. They're essentially nature preserves and they're sequestering a lot of carbon because these are old growth forests or like somewhat mid-growth forests, but really trying to work to preserve large chunks of land. But become older forests. Exactly. Some of those old trees will die someday. There need to be young ones coming along to replace them. That's right. So it's a novel concept. They hired, I think, one of the senior executives from Patagonia to be in the CEO seat. They've had some interesting capital infusion. And now it's really a service that you could offer is say that you want to be a tree at the end of your life. So they'll take the ashes from your cremation and mingle it with some soil to put at the base of a tree. So I love the concept. I love that people are thinking forward about how we can all be a part of the change and create a more cradle to grave or cradle to cradle perspective with how we look at our lives, the products that we consume, and also just where we're getting our nutrition and how we're preserving the forests. I just think that work is incredible. I'm also reminded of a conversation I had with Paul Hawken on another podcast that I host called Care More, Be Better when he said that swaths of land really, they don't want to be bare, like earth doesn't want to be bare. And often the weeds that you see infiltrating are actually a sign of nutrients that are missing from the soil. And so they'll actually come in and actually help to reinvigorate this land so that a forest can grow. So 
in my understanding, part of proforestation is also setting aside chunks of land that could again become forest, which is a process that has to be managed. So I wonder if you could speak to that. Okay, well, here's the idea is that I was curious because all these reports talked about what we could do. You know, we can all do solar panels and this, that, and the other thing. And there was always this little tiny bit that says uh, afforestation, meaning we'll plant new trees. Everybody loves to plant new trees. It's a good thing to do. And another little piece that said reforest, areas that have been deforested. And why are those so small? Well, the reason they're so small is it takes a long time for a tree to get big. And it's always set as either by 2050 or 2100. So you're not going to, planting new trees at any time is not going to do much by 2050. Well, and that's a lot of the carbon credits that people are buying. They're buying and assuming that it's a full-grown tree now, when it's not going to be that for 100 years or more. Let's just say that's an iffy way to, to do the crediting. Well, it's a way in which we continue to borrow from the future, right? We're just saying, oh, well, so in 50 years, it'll be sequestering some carbon. And so I can just spend this carbon now. Yeah, we do not have 50 years to get there. So the idea of proforestation was, since that's it's the growing trees and the existing older trees, which, by the way, are still growing, if not taller, I guess they're like people. As we get older, we don't stop growing taller, but we may grow wider. <laughs> <laughs> and furthermore, in an older forest, on every acre, more than half the carbon will be in the soils. Because year after year, the leaf drop, the needle drop decays, and it becomes a good portion of that material becomes soil carbon. I mean, it's kind of nature's version of composting. And we all know that if we put our waste and our leaves into a composter and stir it every once in a while and let the sun hit it. After a while, you have this beautiful, rich carbon soil. Yeah, it's black earth. Black earth. And so that's what forests are doing by themselves, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And they're building carbon both in the trees and in the soils. And so the idea of proforestation was that we should recognize that and count the continuing growth as part of the solution because the sustainable forest approach is we'll keep cutting trees and letting them grow back and so even if that works you're no better off than you were when you cut them you cut a 50 year old tree it takes 50 years to grow it back if you let it keep growing you would have well more than twice as much carbon in the trees in 50 years the grow back period as if you'd gotten back to where you started. Well, that kind of thinking said to me, the trouble is it takes a whole paragraph to explain this. We need a word for it. And so I started looking at Greek and Latin prefixes on the internet, and meta didn't seem quite right, and proto didn't seem like right, but all of a sudden, pro popped up. Forestation, and forestation means to grow a forest. Proforestation means you're growing forests. Afforestation means you're planting new ones. Reforestation means you're replacing old ones. But there was no word for continually growing the existing forest. And it works well for two reasons. One, there are no emissions associated with harvesting. And secondly, it is accumulating for many, many decades, sometimes centuries. So it has caught on. I'm astounded at the number of people that have read that paper, the number of references it's getting. Not all favorable because, needless to say, the forestry industry doesn't favor that idea very much. That's kind of sad, right? Like the reason that they're in existence is because there are forests and yet they're not pro-forests. That's interesting. 
Now, there's this concept of our forest as a farm, as actually a place to get food and even think about doing things like planting and harvesting nut trees on the perimeter of some forests. So I wonder what your thoughts are around the potential for our forests to become a food source for at least communities uh, around those forests. I'm not sure why they have to be, the fruit and nut trees have to be planted next to them, but I do know that in Costa Rica, even when they have banana plantations, if there are bits of forest around it, the productivity goes up. The reason is pollinators. And pollinators are everything from bats to insects to birds. And so the farmers who leave these pieces of forest as part of their banana plantations get payments for ecosystem services. In other words, the services of, in this case, pollination. So that's one way you could do it and comes as close to what you're talking about, a real example that I know about. I also know in large chunks of Italy, there are chestnuts everywhere. And we don't have that anymore in the United States because there was a blight that killed off much of the chestnut forests that we had. But it doesn't mean that we can't also turn to some food-bearing trees as part of this proforestation effort or even the afforestation effort. It was important for many animals in the forest. And the animals are important for dispersing the seeds. And so it's not as though a forest is just a bunch of trees. And here's another just a little catchy phrase I like. You can plant a tree, but you can't plant a forest. Because a forest is a complex ecosystem, which includes, oh my goodness, microorganisms in the soil, microorganisms in the park, and fungi. The fungal networks we've only learned in the last few decades are essential to bringing nutrients to trees. And we always thought if there's a fungus, oh my God, get rid of it, get a fungicide out there. I mean, we had this idea that it was like corn patch where you don't want any weeds in there. In the forest, all these other species of plants are not weeds in a natural forest. In fact, a friend of mine in Australia pointed out to me that the fact that 80% of biological diversity on land is in forests, that is numbers of species, is the wrong way to think about it. A forest is itself a highly ecologically functioning ecosystem. And it would not be a forest. We should probably not call it a forest unless it has this wide range of biodiversity from soil organisms. Oh, and all the creepy crawly things. I mean, it's just all this stuff we don't even think about. You think about the furry creatures. Oh, there's a beautiful tree. But it's so much more than that. Well, I have to tell you, in my personal home, we have a compost. We compost our organic matter, right? I have an undeveloped portion of my land that is also a forest. We tend it by keeping the bay saplings at a minimum, just because they tend to be fire ladders. But we've preserved some very large oak trees and working to keep that a healthy space. And so these are all things that we're just working to do in our space. Like we didn't develop this portion of our land because it is, it's a forest, right? Since reading Paul Hawkins' Regeneration and learning more about how regenerative agriculture works, I have stopped looking at weeds the same way. And really just thinking about it as, oh, well, if I can just cut it without tearing all the root system out, I'm doing my own little part of helping to preserve the carbon that's in the soil and the ecosystem that is that soil, the earthworms and everything else, the microbes that are essentially helping me create the strawberries and mint and oregano and to the fruit trees that I have too. 
it's interesting. It's a great thing to educate ourselves upon because if we have a little patch of earth that we can manage, then perhaps we can be more part of that solution. Well, when you think about the fact that the area of yard lawns in the United States is greater than the area of the state of Pennsylvania, and these are ecological deserts. I mean, everybody works and works to make sure there's only one species of bluegrass in that lawn. And they spend a lot of money and they spend a lot of chemicals and all these things to keep it that way. It would be far more interesting, far more productive if they didn't insist on having that kind of a yard. And we even do it in places. I lived in Los Angeles for a while. I was astounded. They had Minneapolis-style lawns, and it was watered all the time. And the Colorado River is running out of water, and that supplies a big portion of Southern California's water system. So thinking differently, they had a spectacular bunch of desert species in California that make great ornamentals for your space. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir. My father's a landscape architect here, and he specializes in using local plants and these projects because they require a lot less water. They tend to get established rather quickly. They're beautiful. And guess what? A lot of his projects include zero lawn. It's a huge cost environmentally. Also, if you think about how much we are now paying for water in California, those rates keep going up and there's a good reason for it. They're trying to control our behavior through our pocketbooks, which is probably honestly a little bit easier to do than by telling us about all the ecological reasons we need to be concerned. Well, I have to say, I really enjoyed this conversation today. Dr. Muma, I appreciate all of your work and I really would just love to offer you the floor if you have a closing thought or if you had a question that you wish I asked that I hadn't, please ask an answer. I guess my plea would be that we be more thoughtful about everything we do. I've gone through the whole technological piece. I live in a zero net energy home in cold New England, first one engineered to be that. Energy from solar panels, heat from the ground, stored summer heat that I use in the winter. I cool with natural systems and so forth. And I've had an electric vehicle now for three and a half years that three quarters of the miles I drive on it are done from my solar panels. High gasoline prices do not bother me at all. And the sun will be shining certainly through the rest of my lifetime. So I think got a pretty good system here. But it's also critical. We will not solve the climate problem if we keep abusing the natural world. And I was so impressed that the IPCC report, the one on that deals with impacts and vulnerability and adaptation, uh, I had a phrase, if you'll allow me, I'd just like to read it. It's so powerful. It says, safeguarding biodiversity and ecosystems is fundamental to climate resilient development. That's us developing our lives and things. So it's fundamental to climate resilient development in light of the threats climate change poses to them, to these ecosystems, and their roles in adaptation and mitigation. In other words, having forests intact do more to make us more resilient and to adapt, as well as mitigating by removing so much carbon. They make that statement with very high confidence. And then they go on to say, building the resilience of biodiversity and supporting ecosystem integrity can maintain benefits for people, including livelihoods, human health and well-being, and the provision of food, fiber, and water, as well as contributing to disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation and mitigation. That is so good. Where do I sign up? That's right. Well, it's going to take all of us working towards a solution like this for a generation and possibly more in order to safeguard our future. 
And I just have to say, I appreciate the work that you've put out there. I so thank you for your time today, Dr. Bill Muma. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Now, I hope that with me today on Nutrition Without Compromise, you've learned a thing or two. Perhaps you've even made a decision to try and do things a little bit differently in your life, whether it be replacing some of the food that you're eating with something that's more plant-based or even considering taking an algae supplement over a fish oil. We have many products available. Orlo Nutrition already offers a couple of omega-3 products as well as a spirulina extract to support your immune system. You can find out more at orlonutrition.com. Now, I will also include links to the IPCC reports that we discussed with Dr. Bill Muma today, as well as more detail on how to connect with him via his websites and also via LinkedIn. Thank you for joining me today on Nutrition Without Compromise. Here's to your health. Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs because nutrition shouldn't be an either or.